and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. We're getting up there in episodes. This is number 139. You out there, Dan? Plan 139 from Outer Space. Ooh, I like that. You know, that that is a good title. Yes, because as always, we're here on our film podcast to talk about some films. We are in the midst of our ongoing theme month deep into said month i think it's the seventh week of the month (laughs) that's how you know it's a good month it lasts seven weeks (laughs) some of those early covid months felt like they last seven weeks yeah you're right and the month that we are in the interminable but very enjoyable month is our movies about making movies theme month So the films that I've assigned this time around are Ed Wood from Tim Burton in 1994, which is a biopic about the often cited worst director of all time, Edward D. Wood Jr., who made a bunch of Z-grade, mostly science fiction movies in the 1950s. And kind of grew to acclaim in subsequent decades, particularly when his stuff, some of it lapsed into the public domain. So, Dan, what was your previous exposure to the films of Ed Wood? None. I had never seen any of his movies. Um, I knew Plan 9 by reputation, and I knew the director, uh, just again by reputation, but... This week was my first privilege of seeing an Ed Wood picture. Right, because if I didn't say, we also put on Plan 9 from Outer Space from, I believe, 1959. So I have a background with Ed Wood. If you're part of our Discord, I'm definitely going to be dropping some links in the supplemental media thread. But I've talked probably a few times that my introduction to old movies came on PBS when I was young, no cable. So I watched all the PBS kids shows, Wishbone, Bill Nye, Kretz Creatures, all that stuff. But then when it would come around to nighttime, one of the four PBS stations in this area was based out of Northern Virginia Community College. It was Channel 53. And on Friday nights at nine o'clock, they would show an episode of the Red Skelton comedian program. And then they'd go into a science fiction horror movie. And I've brought this up a few times. This is where I saw Fantastic Planet. This is where I saw Night of the Living Dead. 
And actually, Night of the Living Dead was the last one that I watched when I was nine because it was too scary and I turned it off. But leading up to that point, they'd all been tamer, hokier stuff, including like maybe four times I sat and watched Plan 9 from Outer Space when I was like seven and eight years old. It's a formative thing on you. It was. And it was like the right level of scary for me then. Because it's like, I mean, these are basically zombies, like, staggering around in the cemetery. But then, like, before they do anything, you know, it's always, ah, and it cuts away. Or they'll, like, slap somebody on the shoulders and he falls down. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was funny. And that's a bunk for you. No, no, that's how the zombie gets you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the intro and outro from Criswell, for whatever reason, that, like, was effective to me when I was a real little kid. When he says... You may encounter someone in the street, and you will never know it, for they will be from outer space. <laughs> it's like that, that sent a chill down my spine. Do you still feel that way? Do you still think that some of the people you encounter could be aliens? I mean, you know, it could be. Future events such as these could affect you in the future. But now, with a little bit of hindsight, a little more worldly experience, I can see that... A lot of this is nonsense. Just <laughs> complete surreal what was even happening. And I appreciate it from a different level. Yeah. Just one space guy. <laughs> one space man or woman. We don't know for sure. <laughs> and then I started, yeah, to view it a little differently. And I first found out about this biopic in my freshman year of college. So 2008, I got into watching reviews by James Rolfe online, who is best known for his angry video game nerd series, but is like even over and above that into film. And around that time, he started a partnership with spike.com where he was doing Movie reviews for Spike.com. What's Spike.com? I don't know what that is. So... Or like Spike TV? Do you remember there was a TV channel called Spike yeah, TV? Yeah, Okay. And I think it was associated with that. The, like, channel for men. Yeah. Which I think... So, Channel 53, to throw it back for a second... I mentioned that I stopped watching the movie broadcasts when I was nine because I got freaked out. And I tuned back in when I was like 11 and the channel was just gone. And then it was static for a little while. And then it became G4, the like video game channel, which is neither here nor there, except I think it was close on the dial to Spike TV now that you mention it. But anyhow, James Rolfe, a few consecutive weeks of these reviews that he did, he posted something called the Ed Woodathon, which was like a three-part, like 15-minute chunk retrospective of the career of Ed Wood. And then the final piece of this series that he was doing was about the Ed Wood biopic, which he said was one of his favorite movies. And I had never heard of this before. I had pretty much just seen Plan 9 from Outer Space. Subsequently, I've also seen... Bride of the Monster, which gets made in the biopic, 
I don't know if I've seen Glenn or Glenda all the way through. And actually, one more thing is I think I've seen Plan 9 on the big screen before. Because there have been a few special riff track screenings, which, you know, kind of grew out of the legacy of Mystery Science Theater. So screenings where they'd have these movies in the theater and then supposedly the hosts would be doing their commentary from some, like, bunker somewhere. Like, actually on these movie night events, they were supposedly live streaming, sitting somewhere and doing the commentary live, but they weren't in the theater with you. They were at one of, like, a thousand theaters that were doing the event. Oh, okay. Interesting. That's clever, actually. And we were listening in, almost like a podcast, you know? But a live podcast. So it's kind of interesting. Plan 9 never appeared on MST3K. Um, I was reading this article in the past couple days that was just like retrospecting Plan 9 and its its impact. And they commented that it was almost like either too obvious uh, for even for MST3K and its stupidity. Or it was, like, too sacred. It's like the urtext of bad movies. (laughs) No. I feel like it had already carved out its niche. Mystery Science Theater was a kingmaker, bringing other things to people's attention, like Manos and Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. There's also been a Plan 9 remake from roundabout... I don't know, 2016. I got to get the exact year for that. But that was one kind of in the vein of we talked Feeders a few months back and how there was a legacy sequel to Feeders and it had like all the internet horror hosts involved. So this this remake that's just called Plan 9 has got a lot of recent horror hosts making cameos, including Jerry Moore, actually. And... Also, James Rolfe shows up. Oh, nice. Yeah, Kind of, you know, tying in that he was a part of of continuing the legacy. There was a documentary made, too, and I couldn't find it anywhere. I didn't really spend too long looking for it, but it wasn't in my usual stomping grounds when I'm trying to find a film. And so I didn't get to watch it. Um, I got to say, it's almost a kind of intimidating I talked last week about how, or maybe it, was, it wasn't last week, it was when we were talking about um, Eight and a Half, so the episode I've been editing, but I think two weeks ago we recorded. Um, anyways, I talked about how I find it like a little intimidating to watch great movies. I talked about it from the context of like only getting, I only get the chance to watch a great movie for the first time once, so I try and space it out, like watching the great movies. But... With Plan 9, I felt a little bit of that, too. It's like, am I in the right headspace to watch this legendarily bad movie? Am I going to appreciate all of the all of the intricate badness of it? And like, I wanted context for like, what are the things that people have latched onto specifically? So I would I would definitely watch a documentary about it. And I did like the uh, I mean, we'll talk about the relationship between the biopic and the movie, but um, I, I really I really liked how you could see the spirit of Ed Wood in the biopic, and that made me enjoy the silliness of Plan 9 even more. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to see the documentary, too. So what order did you watch these films in, Dan? I did Plan 9 and then Ed Wood. Cool. 
Would you like to talk about them in that order? Whatever you prefer. That's fine right. by me. Cool, cool. So, Plan 9 from Outer Space, for whatever reason, has kind of lived in the public consciousness as Ed Wood's opus. I feel like Bride of the Monster is pretty similar. I mean, it's more like zero-budget, cardboard tombstone, mad scientist-type stuff. But P Plan 9 is the one that put him on the map, so to speak. Even though, <laughs> as it says in, like, the postscript of the biopic he he never really amounted to anything which is kind of the point and the way that it framed it it was like it it was it it's if you were to read the sentences like without knowing what it was i forget exactly what the wording is i want to maybe you have it memorized or maybe we can look it up but it's like he he continued to not gain movie but he also struggled to make movies it was like no he just he just failed he was a nothing <laughs> and it, it made me laugh <laughs> I'm going to see if I can find the exact wording when we, when we get there. But Plan 9 from Outer Space kicks off with an introduction from our narrator named Criswell, who is a television psychic of the day. He's got like, well, it's black and white, so it looks like he's got like shock white hair and a tuxedo. And he's doing like a news report. I I like the setup of this intro where he's got this like nebulous pattern lit behind him and he like the lights come up on him and he starts this tale about you will never believe the shocking facts about well no he doesn't say plan nine from outer space because that wasn't the original title of the movie he says you will never believe the shocking facts about grave robbers from outer space <laughs> One detail here, I just went to one of my usual gray market uh, viewing grounds for Plan 9, and the one that I found was colorized. So it was, we, we talked a little bit about this. So it's a black and white movie, and I gathered after about maybe a quarter of a second that this was just bad post-added colorization because it is real bad, but... Just for context on how I watched it, I watched a poorly colorized version. I actually ended up watching the colorized version this time, too. And supposedly it's like a pretty recent colorization. I think of colorization as being an effort of like the early home video market, you know, like mid mid 80s artifact where they decided that was a good idea. And then shortly thereafter decided it wasn't. But this said like what I read that in the 2000s at some point they did this colorization effort and what blew my mind a little bit was there was this one scene where there's like a picture on the wall they're just in a bedroom somewhere and a picture on the wall is like in crazy sharp focus and then i looked it up and i guess that was like somebody who worked on the colorization in the 2000s just stuck their family photo in the movie <laughs> so it's a modern photo oh that's like, funny it's like why does that look completely different so i chuckled at that but criswell leads us in and we have some shots of an elderly bella lugosi so the star of dracula is here in the movie for a little while and like he's at a funeral they say it's for his wife 
And so now he's distraught. And he staggers off out of frame and I guess gets run over by a car because there's like a screeching car horn. There's several shots of him walking around outside. And that's about it. The most narratively significant one is the one where he's standing by the, the coffin. But so the man and the wife have been interred in this cemetery and pretty soon they're out of their boxes. They're up walking around and confronting people. I think they kill the grave diggers first. I liked actually with the colorization that they left the zombies gray. Yeah. I thought that it, was kind of cool. I guess you could have done a green or something like that, but it, it achieved a good effect. Yeah. Right. Like leave just the zombies in the black and white and everybody else is colored was kind of cool. Mm hmm. And now that people are dropping dead, going missing, the cops start investigating the cemetery. And it's this group of bumbling cops who got reused in a few Ed Wood movies. They're supporting cast members in the biopic. And I think this is a good time to talk about what this movie actually looks like, because that's part of what just makes it so strange. This is when I really noticed it. So it's it's almost like trippy. It's because it's these really cheap and flat sets, but the back is not lit at all. And so you get this really strange effect of like things in the foreground that are lit up, but also like not well and consistently lit. So it, it almost feels like an unintentional bit of like chiaroscuro lighting like they use in film noir like the the harsh lights that just give you a disorienting effect but i think it's like via incompetence not via artistry and so it's it's just like it kind of feels like you're in a shoebox or something like that it's so strange and then it gets even better because then they'll be like talking and because that gives the impression that it's night because it's just dark behind them and then they'll like step outside and it'll be like bright as day, like just the sun up in the sky. It's like, wait, hold on. I thought it was night out. What's going on? And then they'll step back somewhere. And it'll be night again. There's not a lot of attention paid to continuity in this film. <laughs> and one of the cops investigating is like two heads taller than the rest of them and twice as wide. And this is Swedish wrestler Tor Johnson, who... You kind of just got to see a picture of him to understand, but he's like a minotaur or something. He's just a really big husky or like a, like a bulldog man. What's the line in the biopic? He's a mountain or something like that. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I'll, I'll return to it. But I just want to say that I love how optimistic Johnny Depp is the whole biopic. He's uh -huh. just always brimming with enthusiasm. He doesn't rip down any sinks in the biopic. <laughs> so Tor Johnson is this detective for a little while. He's got a few lines that are almost unintelligible because he's got this thick, gruff accent. But soon he goes around the side of a mausoleum or something and runs into a zombie. Uh, 
so the two ghouls that we've met at this point are Bella Lugosi and also the, the female ghoul is Vampira, who was arguably the first horror host showing horror movies on TV. If you're trying to picture this, picture Elvira, because Elvira basically copied. My head was like, hold on. I thought she was a lot younger than this. And I was like, oh, it's not the same person. So they really they have the same exact look. Right. Elvira's got, at least in a lot of the the stuff that she does, a little more of like an updo, like a like a beehive hairdo. That's true. Whereas yeah, Vampire's yeah. kind of got it down, but very much leaning into the decolletage. Like the the form-fitting black dresses and the pale makeup and the kind of heart-shaped face. Right. But now the zombies have grown their ranks to three because Tor Johnson is among them. And he's got these, like, freaky contact lenses in. This was a great... I took... I actually... I was... This is kind of a tangent. Okay, I guess I'll, I'll just follow this thread. I was... Uh, putting my daughters to bed last night and my six-year-old stank up the bathroom and I like I made a face because it was really smelly in the bathroom and then I, I shortly after was watching this clip and I was like the way that I felt is the way that that guy's face is so <laughs> I, I took a picture of it and was gonna send it to you Brian but I forgot to <laughs> and actually Tor Johnson is best remembered because his face was turned into a Halloween mask. Okay. And Dan, did you recognize this mask? Does it ring any bells? Oh boy. I thought it looked familiar, but I, I couldn't place it. So what was, what is it? What mask is it? Well, so I found one in a thrift store, a Dawn Post Tor Johnson mask, and I used it on Gauntly for our Krampus character oh, who was okay. around for several Christmas episodes. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I can see it now as a Gauntlet character. Right. And it was a case where I saw it there on the shelf. I was like, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> I like when they come out of the graves, like there's like a, a pulsing in the dirt. But I, I actually did genuinely like the first shot where he, it may not be the first one, but one of the shots where I th he rises out of the grave. It might be the first time Tor Johnson rises out of the grave. It's got all this spooky lighting. And then like he, he comes up very dramatically and like fills the whole frame. And you really do get a sense of his hugeness. I think that's the best shot of the film. And he makes a good zombie lurching around. Mm -hmm. But this is not just a zombie movie because we also have aliens in the mix. We cut to a pilot in the cockpit of a plane, allegedly. And out the window, he sees the plane being buzzed by a UFO. So, do you have anything to say about this cockpit set or, or anything with the plane, Dan? Well, all of the shots that are like kind of special effects are hilarious. They're like clearly things dangling on a screen. And um, I'm trying to remember the cockpit in particular. I think, was that the one that just was literally a gray wall background or, or, or was that a different one? Yeah, there's like a gray wall and a black curtain 
and there's a thing on the wall that looks like a styrofoam plate that I think is supposed to be some kind of gauge. <laughs> and then there, each pilot is holding like half of a paper plate. It's like after last season with the cardboard box machine that they have at the beginning. That's right. And also they made a big deal about this cockpit scene in the biopic, which when I was a little kid, I definitely didn't register. It just, I, I think it looks, I mean, it doesn't look good at all, but <laughs> I am willing to accept in like theatrical terms that, okay, this is a plan. Also, there's a lot of stock footage use in this movie. So like, Anytime you see the exterior of a plane flying, like, over the Pentagon, it's like, oh, okay, that's a plane flying over the Pentagon. Well, he just got that footage from somewhere. Yeah. And a lot of that kind of stuff with the military as well. There's this one clip of a, of a satellite dish spinning that he might have used 37 times in this flick. It just <laughs> shows up again. It felt like it. It was probably only, like, two or three times, but it was like the goddamn satellite again. If you go to the tape, you'll see that that satellite clip is in the Gauntly intro. Oh, nice, nice. One of several Plan 9 shots that I incorporated there. Now, is Plan 9 in your film favorites, your 100 film favorites? I can't remember. It was not. Okay. But as with some others, I, I it's one that I hold in a special place, mm -hmm. uh, even if it's not among the 100 best. Mm-hmm. That would almost be doing it a disservice, I think. Right. You gotta let it hold its special place of badness. Let it be bad, yes. Did we talk about the aliens yet? Uh, well, we're getting there. So we've seen the UFOs are flying around. The pilot goes back to his house, and his wife is there. They live right next to the cemetery, and also it seems like the UFOs are consistently dive bombing their house. <laughs> and I think they live near Hollywood. It was a little hard to keep track of where everything was, but they talk about that the UFOs are over Hollywood. So I like to think that's where this pilot, Jeff Trent, lives. But then it cuts to Washington because word has spread that these UFOs are out there. It's getting published in the newspapers. I guess you see a guy sitting in like a phone booth or something reading a newspaper that says UFOs over Hollywood. Apparently that's Ed Wood holding the paper. Mm, okay. I feel like the movie is not very consistent on like how much the public knows about these aliens, like what the, the take is on because it's a big news article. But then it's like there, we have to be secret about the about it, too. And it's like, what do you actually know? It was really weird. I definitely noticed that this time because they introduced this colonel in the army as the head of saucer field operations. So one would think that his commanding officer and like Congress or whoever makes these decisions said, this is a problem. You're the head of our UFO task force. And then he's like, leading artillery barrages that don't seem to be damaging the spacecraft, but they're keeping the spacecraft from landing. But then later on in the movie, he goes and sits down with a general and he's like, I believe that UFOs are real. And the general <laughs> says, UFOs are not real. And the colonel says, I believe they are. And the general says, 
You're right. <laughs> it's like, what? Who? His job is to be in charge of saucer field operations. So who gave him that job? Also, I like that the, the way that he got clearance was he stated his belief two times. That was when he got the second time. That was when they could admit it. <laughs> Are you sure? Yes. Okay. And this time I also really noticed the, the scene where the artillery is firing at the UFO. Like, you've got shots interspersed of the colonel standing in front of a gray wall and, like, gesturing with his hand, and then stock footage of the guns firing. Okay, I think that's what I was initially thinking the cockpit was, was the gray wall of them saying, but now I'm remembering, so the cockpit, it had, like, a curtain in it, right? Right. Yeah, okay, gotcha, we're good. Slowly, and in meandering fashion, the storylines start to converge. So, all this time, the cops have been, like, wandering around the cemetery, basically. One of them has a good line. They they pull up to the cemetery and he says, I've been here so many times, I feel like I should get a lease on the place. <laughs> it made me think of the hot cops in Arrested Development. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're all handsome fellas. That's true. And have a swagger about them. I do want to shout out the detective who's with them, who's like, uh, Inspector Clouseau or something and then he's got the you know the trench coat and like a little mustache but I love that this guy just does everything with his gun he, he scratches he, his nose and he stuff. has no safety concern <laughs> no trigger discipline yeah he's like pushing up the brim of his hat and pointing at people and he's doing it all with the gun <laughs> that guy right there just waggling it around It's can we talk for a second about how many genres this matches up is because it's like a zombie movie. Yeah. And it's an alien movie and it's like a government conspiracy movie, but it's also a little bit of a detective movie. And I, and it's kind of like got with the airplane stuff. It's got some vibes of a disaster movie too in there. And I was just like, what the hell is going on in this movie? It's like he, it's a lot of stuff mishmashed together. <laughs> and as everybody starts to convene in the cemetery, and of course, Pilot Jeff, I think his name is, yeah, Pilot Jeff is kind of taking the helm. He's our, he's our hero, and so he's going to start unifying the efforts alongside Colonel Edwards, who's out there now, too. But we start to learn, and I guess the general explains a lot of it, that, yes, there are aliens. And not only that, but we've apparently been communicating with them for a while. And we apparently have technology that translates alien broadcasts. It had some good name. It was like the Robolinguistor or something. But the general plays like the latest voicemail they got from the aliens. And it's pretty dire. It's like, if you will not allow us to land, we will need to eliminate the human race. And then he says, we got this message a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> like, is that the kind of thing you sit on? I, 
I mean, one would think that in the nuclear age, you would not let an existential threat sit in the drawer for a month, but... That was... So... My, that was the biggest laugh of the movie for me, is, like, they're doing this message, they're playing this message, and then the two guys are, like, sitting there, and they're, like, making surprised faces and, like, looking around all curious, and it was the funniest bit of acting in the movie for me. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if they were even hearing anything playing, but, like, I just like to imagine them sitting there doing this acting thing where they're not even hearing it. It's like... Act like you're listening to something, but they're and so they're like putting their hand on their chin and stuff. <laughs> That's a good point because at one moment the pilot looks out the window of the plane, and then he turns around and says, "Do you see that? It looks like a flying cigar." And a flying saucer does not look like a cigar. <laughs> no, not even a little bit. But it could definitely be a case where they didn't know what it was going to look like. I know, yeah. It had to get added. Cut that in later. Yep. Or maybe he knew what it was going to look like, but he didn't do a second draft on the script, you know. <laughs> but pretty soon we finally get to see the aliens piloting these craft. And most of the time we spend with a male and female grunt pair like lower tier alien officers. The guy is named Eros and the girl is Tana. And they answer to their glorious leader of the aliens. who's like up in the mothership that they periodically check in with. Not voiced by RuPaul this time. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's not too different. <laughs> this, this actor is a guy named Bunny Brickenridge or Bunny is the, the nickname definitely prominent in the biopic the aliens were my second biggest laugh of the movie because they're just people in shiny shirts that do that talk a little funny and do this funny gesture where they tap their shoulders like crossing their arms before they enter or leave a room like that's how you know that they're weird that's there's something else they don't do human things they tap their shoulders before they leave that's like the <laughs> part of their culture and it's like the cheesiest they're like just shiny garments you buy at a party store you know that they're wearing and the leader has like an icon of a halberd like a pole axe on his tunic like he's at the renaissance <laughs> fair <too. laughs> it's like who uses an axe in this space age civilization why is that your emblem <laughs> I didn't catch it. Are we ever given an explanation for why they're just people? Like the aliens aren't aliens, they're just people. Are they like trying to blend in or something? Or are we just to take that these pe these creatures from another planet happen to be exactly identical to humans in appearance? Yeah, I don't know. I accept it. They do play it up in the biopic where they're asking Edward, shouldn't I have antenna or something? <laughs> no. You look just like an alien. Yeah, that was pretty funny. But one thing in the colorization, there's a moment when one of the like trio of lead human dudes punches Eros the alien and his face turns green. So I think they must have added that to be like, oh, his disguise is slipping. I thought it was just bad colorization in the moment, but I could buy that. Yeah. 
And now that I think about it, I don't know if I said it when I was describing it, but they have like the bright purple in the alien stuff. And I was like, that's actually a good use of the colorization because it feels kind of alien on their garments. That's true. Before the humans meet up with the aliens, they have a confrontation with the Bela Lugosi ghoul like halfway through the movie. And to supposedly scare the humans or something, cow them into surrender, the aliens announce that they're going to like shine a laser beam on Bela Lugosi and dissolve him to dust in front of the humans. And so they do that. It just really seems like that diminishes the ranks of their army like they only had three zombies and now they've (laughs) killed one of them but the reason for this is because bella lugosi died early on like prior to most of the production of this film and so he's in a few shots where you see his face where he's walking around outside mostly and then other scenes where he's needed They had a completely different person stand around holding his cape up in front of his face and walking around that way. Yeah. So it's also a vampire movie, by the way. So they throw the pile that on the genre list. Wikipedia called this method of getting around an actor dying fake shimping. Because apparently in some of the Three Stooges films, there was an actor who was not Shemp, who was trying to convince us that he was Shemp. So there's a a whole Wikipedia article, Fake Shemp. We haven't watched any Three Stooges here on the pod. No, maybe that will come. But everybody's together among the humans, and they go into the graveyard where one of the alien ships has landed, I guess. And now is the big showdown, where they confront these two aliens we've been seeing, Eros and Tana. And the aliens lay out what their whole deal is, why they have beef with the humans. And it's basically the plot of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Have you ever seen that one? I I saw the remake like when I was right when it came out. So I don't remember it in the slightest, but I, don't, I haven't seen the old one. Did that have Keanu Reeves? Who was in the remake? I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember a single frame of it. Let's see when there no the day the earth stood still 2008, <clears throat> 15 years ago. Yes. Keanu Reeves. OK, well, the original, I think, was 1951. Mm -hmm. And it's got this basic thrust, which is that the aliens have come to Earth because they detected that humans have developed nuclear weapons. And if our technological progress continues apace, we're only going to make more and more dangerous weapons until we threaten the whole universe because we are reckless and dangerous. And, you know, the whole thing is a metaphor for not really like an interstellar threat. It's that we're going to destroy ourselves if we're not careful. And the aliens in this movie, Plan 9, specifically say that humans are eventually going to figure out something called the Solaronite, which I guess is a bomb that splits photons somehow. They say particles of sunlight. 
I thought this was kind of clever. It's like you'll destroy everything because you'll blow up sun and you'll blow up light energy and lights everywhere. So it'll blow up everything. I was like, for as half ass as so much of this production is, that's like a sprinkle of an idea here. I like it, too. You know, it's kind of like the chain reaction that they're worried about in Oppenheimer, but that's everywhere. Just the entire everywhere the light touches. And kind of plays on the atomic apocalypse imagery, you know, of a bright light wiping everything out. Right. And honestly, I think these aliens make some good points, but pretty much immediately pilot Jeff punches the effete alien in the face and smashes his calculator or whatever. And everything is on fire. And the aliens are down for the count. Yeah. I was thinking Hater's going to make some valid points. Like maybe you should hear these aliens out humans. You don't necessarily have to give over your whole planet. They only have three zombies. Yeah, by the way, why are they grave robbers? I never quite caught on to that part of that. Well, like, why is that the thrust of their plan? <laughs> well, what do they say? They're like, humans, those which are alive, fear that which is dead. Okay. So, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that that's an explanation, but they're like, humans hate zombies, so it's going to be a great tool to use. I feel like they didn't think that one through. They got a lot of technology. (laughs) They could do something else. Man, my favorite line from Eros the Alien is, You see your human minds, stupid, stupid. Stupid. Yeah, that was pretty good. There's some good line readings in here for sure. I feel like part of it was... They don't, it's like they barely rehearse the lines. It's like they don't know which part of the sentence to emphasize, you know? (laughs) Yep. But the humans rush off the saucer as it's bursting into flames, and I guess losing the contact with the brainwave or whatever is controlling the ghouls reverts them all to skeletons. So it's a happy ending for humanity. And that's Plan 9 from Outer Space. So any other thoughts before we uh, delve into the the story behind the story, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I would just emphasize that, like, talking about the story doesn't convey the experience of watching the film. It's like a fever dream where it's like it half makes sense at all times. And it's just so weird. Like, the, the rhythm of things and that whole energy and like the shoddy sets with like this hammy overacting, but like not quite to pure camp levels, but also almost. And it's just, it's just like a weird, a strange, strange experience to watch this film. Yeah. And this is a, an instance like how we talked about Pee Wee recently that I was watching this, you know, when I was six and seven, and took it at face value. Just thought, okay, this is a normal thing. But in <laughs> fact, it is not. With hindsight, one realizes the outliers. And this is one of them. And, and I admire how it kept surprising me. It kept pulling out some new incompetent trick. Some new, like, idiocy. 
like the skeleton is like a dollar store skeleton and it's and then like i don't know just every scene had some new surprise i've got to show you at some point lost skeleton of cadavra which i talked about briefly in my hundred film favorites but that's one that is it was made in 2001 but is very much paying homage to the ed wood stuff okay and like really nailed the style like you would you would buy that it came out of the 50s that's awesome and it makes me want to make a movie like a uh just throw something like this dude could do this like we could do this brian that's right well i'll probably be calling on your assistance here in the next year or so because i've got to do some big project for my degree so i'll keep you in the loop okay yeah we can do it are you ready now to talk about the biopic from 1994? Let's do it. All right. So this is my second Tim Burton movie in a row. I might have another one before the year's out. I haven't decided yet, but it's a possibility. And this is just titled Ed Wood, which unless you know who Ed Wood is, that doesn't tell you i don't know that that would necessarily get you interested in the movie but maybe you need to know who edward is to appreciate this yeah i feel like the phrase the worst director in the world comes up something like that would have been a good title you know playing up the badness of it i think so i i think that would have just kind of clued people in like i mean even the pt barnum movie you know gets called the greatest showman and like Definitely more people know who P.T. Barnum is than Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a another movie that's just called Ed Gein about the serial killer. And, I mean, like, it, if you just were walking down the video store aisle, you could just as easily pick up one or the other, I feel. Ed Wood or Ed Gein, yeah. Yeah. But I also feel like, uh, not to belabor it too much, if... Perhaps if you, I haven't, I don't know what Ed Gein is. You said that's a movie or it's a show. Yeah. That's also a, a film. Yeah. Yeah. So like the purpose of that could be to like show that how a human turned into a monster potentially. So like there could be thematic purposes of why you like take this dramatic thing in serial killer, bad director and like give it the title of the human underneath. But I feel like this biopic is not really interested in like, the complex human Ed Wood very much. It's like Ed Wood is like this driving force of optimism was the word you used. I think that's right. Like uh, uh, the very essence of creative ingenuity. This movie makes me smile. And I'll probably say that a few times. But it kicks off with Ed Wood, who is played by... Tim Burton stalwart Johnny Depp. And actually, if you hold up pictures of him in this movie and the actual Ed Wood, it's it's pretty good casting. I mean, Tim Burton is going to call on Johnny Depp every opportunity he gets, at least in, in this era. But I think it's good casting. Yeah, I thought he was good. I don't really know what Ed Wood looks like, but I tend to care less about those things. We talked to that, about that a little bit in the... The Greatest Showman, I think it was. I just, I liked that he really captured a really distinct persona. I was like, okay, I kind of get what Ed Wood is. And like Johnny Depp was fun to watch as that version of Ed Wood, who 
was Edward actually like this? I don't know, but I can imagine this version of Edward as as played by Johnny Depp. Exactly. Yeah, I'm on the same page. And when the film opens, Edward has a play going on. So like Asteroid City, this has got a play, at least for part of it. And there's these awkward, ham-handed actors staggering through this, like, stilted dialogue. But back behind the scenes, Edward just has the light of artistic fervor in his eyes, and he's mouthing along with every line as they, like, awkwardly get through it. If you don't mind me chiming in here what this movie looks like. So this this movie is shot in black and white, like Plan 9, although the one I watched was not colorized. And it does really interesting things with lighting that evoke Plan 9, but like with a clear sense of artistry as opposed to Plan 9. But it still is like very, very clearly inspired by it. So when we see this play, it actually looks almost like a scene from Plan 9. It was like it kind of had my brain rolling here because obviously like, well, actually not obviously. I was like, wait, is this a movie that's supposed to be showing like what would eventually be made? Or is this like the reality of the film itself? And it's kind of interesting how like it has that sort of tension and that ambiguity. Um, even as the movie goes along, it still has an element of like not cheap necessarily, but kind of like exaggerated costumes and lighting and flat staging and um, just a very unique look that I actually really enjoyed. It's really interesting because obviously these are skilled filmmakers and they're doing this labor of love in tribute to an amateurishly made film. And also another layer of that is that it's a biopic. So they're also kind of tied to some semblance of reality, which is not something that you expect from Tim Burton. So one would almost think that he would be champing at the bit to make it weirder than this, but he's telling somebody's life story. Uh, I think the one time that he gets to cut loose is in the opening credits when uh, it starts out, they have Jeffrey Jones as Criswell, uh, disgraced actor Jeffrey Jones, recreating the Criswell intro. So... Future events such as these. And then, like, the camera goes out the window behind Criswell and is tracking through the graveyard, and it's like the realization of what Edward was trying to do with his credits, where he had, like, names scrolled on tombstones. And now, here in the Tim Burton opening, it's like an extended, elegant tracking shot along gravestones that actually are, like, etched with the names and... And then there's like a whole stop motion sequence of a tentacle and UFOs. And it's like, maybe this is what Ed Wood saw in his head. Yeah, that was what I was thinking, too, is like, OK, this is like they're doing the thing, the Ed Wood thing. But now it's it's Tim Burton doing it. And it's almost like maybe he should have just done Plan 9, the Tim Burton style or something. You know, it's like use this style, this arch black and white, uh, interesting lighting that both looks beautiful, but kind of evokes cheaply made film and like use that to make an actual plan nine style story. But I also am glad that we got this biopic because it's also very interesting. Mm -hmm. But as you said, Edward is this creative 
force. Uh, I would hesitate to call him like a luminary, but he's definitely the engine behind what this circle of friends are doing, making these projects. Mm -hmm. Like they get a bad review in the paper and he's assuring them, no, guys, we're doing good work. And it, it's kind of played in an interesting way where your perception of it evolves because you do see that it's kind of cheap, but you also kind of admire that like he's out there doing it and like encouraging his people and stuff. But then on the flip side, it's like you're kind of wondering. I feel like a lot of biopics start this way where like people don't understand them. They're they're not appreciated in their time. And then it like turns out that they're like geniuses. But that. We never get that flip. We never hit that inflection point, the curve back to genius. Now, this is the whole time they're mocked and misunderstood. <laughs> yeah, Edward stays consistent. But he works on, I think it's the universe a lot, as like a teamster, basically. Maybe he's a grip. He carries things around from set to set, like potted plants. And one day... While he's walking along, carrying like a palm tree. So he walks through a desert set and he sees camels there. And I just love his reaction to the camels. Those are real camels. Where where'd they get real camels? He just says everything with this energy and just this happy surprise. A love of the world. And right. The things that he can do. Yeah, joie de vivre. The image of him carrying around a tree was never not funny for me, too. He's just got this big, goofy, fake tree walking everywhere with it. It's like it goes six feet above his head. And as he's walking around the lot, two things happen to him that make this day different from any other. So first, he's walking along the city, and he hears somebody talking about the story of someone named Christine Jorgensen, who I guess was the first publicized case of someone undergoing a sex change operation, male to female, which in this day and age is probably called something different, but that was the parlance of the times. And so there's these headlines that, oh, this is big, you know, kind of tabloid news. And so people are going to want to hear this story. It's it's the buzz of the moment. And he finds out that somebody is making a Christine Jorgensen movie. And so he reaches out to the director, who, no, a producer, reaches out to the producer who's got these rights. And he says, well, you know, I have a special insight to this story. Something that's going to make me the perfect director. So he goes to meet with the producer, who, of course, is just this exploitative guy concerned with just an edgy premise, exploitative premise, and making a cheap buck, fast buck off yeah. of it. Yeah, quick schlock, yeah. Yeah. And he says, all right, why did you want to see me? Why do you think you're the one to direct this movie? And Ed Wood reveals that he wears women's clothing which the term they use is transvestite and i guess it doesn't go beyond that he says he's you know straight except wears the clothes 
And I don't really know what the whole true story of that is. But in the moment here in the movie, the producer says that has nothing to do with the sex change operation story. <laughs> Get out of my office. Yeah. And Edward kind of goes off in a huff. But just down the block, another remarkable thing happens because he runs into Bella Lugosi, played by the actor Martin Landau, who actually won Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this film. Whoa, I didn't know that. That's awesome. I think this film also won the Makeup Oscar that year, believe it or not. Both for Bela Lugosi, presumably, as well as another character we'll meet down the line. But Bela Lugosi says he's trying out coffins. Edward meets him in a coffin store. He says, I plan on dying soon. And though he was once a relatively high-profile horror star, like everybody still remembers Dracula, he was pretty much not exactly a one-hit wonder. I mean, he was in a lot of the Universal Monster movies, not just as Dracula. Sometimes he played Igor. He had a few where he was like a one-off character. But certainly in the late 50s, he's past his prime. And he's also a drug addict as becomes clearer and clearer but now ed wood is bouncing off the walls because he's had a brush with one-time hollywood royalty and it's really infectious how much admiration he has for bella lugosi who is like by all accounts washed up and maybe kind of pathetic i mean the the whole it's kind of awesome how we meet him lying in a coffin i was like oh this is a I'm just imagining Count Gauntly, Brian, like, at a, trying out a coffin, like, meeting him somewhere. And he's like, eh, this, this coffin won't do. It's too tight. Or something <laughs> like that. It is a good intro for the character. How many coffins do you own, Brian? Three. <laughs> One I got because it was a casket shape, and I had to do the, like, ugandan casket dance and my toe pinch my toe pinchers wouldn't have worked but i've got one that's like a pine board toe pincher and then one that's elaborate purple velvet and zebra stripe lined and rhinestones all around the vertices of it that's a great coffin and i got a picture of me in it with a girl and that was pretty much the high water mark of my life so far <laughs> just trying to recapture that magic is that one you used on gauntly yes it showed up in a couple of the later episodes because i didn't get it until 2019 so i am looking for an opportunity to use that coffin again so from your mouth to god's ears <laughs> but another person who's trying to recapture the magic is bella lugosi and ed wood's infectious optimism kind of spreads to him and bolsters his spirit and he says that yes he is interested in helping this aspiring filmmaker so edward goes back to the producer and he says what's the one thing that if you put it in a movie it guarantees you'll make money the producer says tits <laughs> edward says no a movie star i like how you're doing the voice like it's peewee a little bit there's a little bit of peewee in there and so edward says if you sign me to be your director Bella Lugosi has agreed to star in the movie, and yes, in fact, he's still alive. That's something that gets said over and over. No, he's not dead. That did make me laugh how how much everybody thought he was dead, yeah. 
Almost immediately, though, Edward discards the assigned premise of the film. Like, the whole thing that the producer has already paid for, he says, well, I've booked theaters in, like, Oklahoma and Utah, and also I have commissioned a poster. And the poster says, I changed my sex. Which is not what the movie that Edward ends up making is titled. Because he instead makes a self-autobiographical plea for wider acceptance of transvestism and stars in it. And he ends up calling this movie Glenn or Glenda. So it's like his own life story, I guess. And also, Bella Lugosi is in it as the Puppet Master. <laughs> what the hell does that have to do with, <laughs> like, this weird exploitative thing of someone in the news who got a sex change? Why is there someone called the Puppet Master? I don't know. But he just sits in a high back armchair and yells, Pull the string! While he's, like, overlaid with stock footage of stampeding buffalo. Mm-hmm. Landau's performance is really good. I love when he gets to do his dramatic line de deliveries. Of course, being Lugosi doing the dramatic line deliveries. It is good. <laughs> so, Edward has made this movie with a studio behind him. Not a major studio by any means, but he had financial backing, which the producer comes to regret. <laughs> Edward comes and turns in this this roll of film, and then a few days later, you know, calls, so where can I go to watch my movie? He says, it's not going to play in L.A. It's just in those theaters I already paid for, and I wish I hadn't. <laughs> but, you know, Edward's got his print of the movie, and, and he's, like, shopping it around to get other work, saying, I made this feature, I wrote, directed, starred, I can do it all, just like Orson Welles. And... <laughs> I like, he, you know, he turns it into this other studio and the guy says, okay, well, I'll watch your movie. And then he's watching it with his friends and other people who work at the studio and kind of can't believe what he's seeing. <laughs> like, assuming that somebody must be pranking him. This is all like some psyop or something. <laughs> but then Edward calls him back and says, so what'd you think? Oh, uh, worst movie ever saw, huh? Well, my next one will be better. I appreciated that that uh, optimism, but the way the ca that he just casually takes the news, worst movie I ever saw from this guy in the movie business, just rolls right off his back. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got a Teflon spirit. But soon enough, he realizes he's not going to have funding from a studio coming in again anytime soon. And so his girlfriend, who is played by Sarah Jessica Parker, encourages him to seek independent funding. So his little circle of collaborators is, is kind of growing. And he takes Bella Lugosi for a TV appearance on this like Sid Caesar style 1950s variety show. And that's kind of a fiasco because 
Bella Lugosi like can't improvise the comedians like trying to change the script and that doesn't work. But the most important part of this scene where they go and appear at the TV station is they meet Criswell on like another soundstage. And I like Criswell. I mean, I like the real Criswell and I also like how he's portrayed in this movie because he kind of like can't believe how naive Ed Wood is but also, you know, is kind of drawn to him and and likes him, sees something that he likes. And Criswell delivers a bit of advice to Ed Wood that show business success relies on humbug. He says, if you look good and you speak well, people will swallow anything. Uh, this is Jeffrey Jones of like Ferris, Ferris Bueller. Bueller's Day Off. Uh, Amadeus, mom and dad saved the world. And he was in, we, we can talk about how these actors cross over, but, um, he was in the sleepy hollow we watched. He's one of the old guys who dies. I think that was right before his personal life came to light. Yeah. And, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's, there was two overlaps with, City of Ember. Landau is in City of Ember. And then Bill Murray, who we haven't gotten to his character yet, he's in City of Ember too. Oh, man. So for a class, I have to watch this new Apple TV show that's called Silo. And it's just City of Ember. Like, beat for beat. They live in the bunker underground with the yellow lighting and pipes everywhere. And... Tim Robbins is there and oh there's this whole thing where they lost a bunch of their history and so they don't know what happened that and like you know there's all the warnings you can never leave the bunker well is that true or did somebody sabotage the records somewhere along the way because the governor benefits from us staying here oh wow it's like this is city of ember <laughs> it's just uh, all over it just again is it's just is the city of ember that's interesting. But what Criswell suggests is basically if you represent yourself confidently as though you are successful, you will be successful and you will, uh, what do they call it? Uh, lucky girl energy or manifestation boards. It's like if you visualize it, it will come. Which is kind of in line with how Edward already carries himself, but now he like leans into it. Right. And so they start having backers galas for the next film that Ed Wood wants to make at like the old Hollywood Brown Derby Cafe where they're schmoozing with like dentists and doctors, anybody who's got a little bit of money. The next film that he's raising money for is called Bride of the Atom at first. It ultimately ends up getting called Bride of the Monster. But another person that he meets around about this time is Tor Johnson, which is another great transformation. Just really good makeup work that, you know, this guy, because he's, he's a wrestler, and so you see him a lot without his shirt on, and he's just got this Berber carpet of chest hair and shoulder hair and back hair. And he's Tor Johnson size. He's this big monster man. And he's even got the face, the Halloween mask face. It's great. Probably enhanced with the camera work a little bit of just how big he seems. Cause 
There's like a lot of like low angle shots and dramatic lighting and stuff. And also at one of these backers galas, like through the background walks Vampira. And Edward says, oh, hey, Miss Vampira, come and be in my movie, okay? Please? And she kind of turns her nose up at him because he's a nobody, and he is. But he soldiers on, as always. And so they get some backing from a couple rich people who their their demand, recurring demand, tends to be, if I can star in this movie, I'll pay for this movie. There's like a few different rich people who do that. Or my son, make my son the leading man and I'll give you your money. Because it is pretty remarkable that Ed Wood made his movies for like $50,000, which even in the 50s, like a low budget movie was still like a million dollars. So this is very little capital at work. Yeah, this shoestring. One of these people who gives some money to be a star. I thought it was Christina Ricci, but her last name is Landau, Juliet Landau. So I was assuming that she was related to Martin Landau. I would guess that she must be Martin Landau's daughter. Man, Christina Ricci would have been good. Or if they'd gotten like Winona Ryder in there. Oh, yeah. Gotta have the whole Tim Burton stable. Christina Ricci might have been too young at this point, but yeah. True. No Paul Rubens in this. No Michael Keaton in this. So there's a few Tim Burton faces we don't see. But one of Edward's friends who we saw not too long ago, Bill Murray is in this movie playing Bunny Breckenridge. So another Bill Murray movie two weeks in a row because we had Life Aquatic. Was that, that was just last week. Yeah. Right. And then I guess he wasn't in Asteroid City, but it felt like there was a Bill Murray shaped hole in that movie. Yeah, apparently he was going to be Steve Carell's character in that before a scheduling conflict. But they finally finish filming on Bride of the Monster. Uh, Some difficulties emerge between Ed and his girlfriend, Sarah Jessica Parker, because as part of the wheeling and dealing for the money, he replaced her in the movie, had one of the backers play the lead female part which she definitely didn't like. But also, as he's growing this circle of friends, he's becoming more comfortable with being out and about with his cross-dressing. And she's showing that she's not entirely comfortable with that. It's kind of an interesting uh, thread here, because, like, on the one hand, the th- he is learning to be more of, like, a showman, and like someone who can sell stuff, but he's also like leaning into his own weird eccentricities to some extent too. And like kind of using that to try and pull out the energy from the people who he's making the movies with. But like any good biopic, you got to have your second act darkness happen. And it all kind of piles on at once because there's like this bride of the monster rap party where Edward comes out dancing in his Angora sweater and Sarah Jessica Parker has had enough, breaks up with him. She has a really good outburst. She says, these movies are terrible. You're making shit and nobody cares. <laughs> Which, you know, 
maybe there's something to be said for tough love. Yeah. Maybe that's something you need to hear. It kind of comes back to what we were talking about in the Raiders episode. Like, had these movies actually not been bad, I think she would have been right. Nobody would have cared. But the fact that they were bad enough that they kind of circled back to good, that's what, that's what like, drew the people in, you know? Mm-hmm. But she storms off, and pretty much at this same time, Bela Lugosi's addiction has really taken the worst toll on him that he has like collapsed and held a gun to his head and had meltdowns of various kinds and so ed takes him to a rehabilitation facility which briefly like puts him back in the public eye the idea i guess of a celebrity going to rehab is is new in the 1950s and they kind of make jokes about that because, oh, Picasso, he'll never amount to anything. It's like, a, you know, something that was a big deal in the 80s and 90s and a novelty in the 50s. Yeah. And this kind of takes the place of, in a normal biopic, it would be Ed Wood being the one, the main character, be having the breakdown. Like in Johnny Cash, you know, and uh, I need more blankets and less blankets type moment. But uh here it's it's Bella, not uh, Edward. Edward is just kind of a constant force throughout the whole film. Exactly. And during his visits with Bella at the rehabilitation facility, Edward meets a new love interest who's played by Patricia Arquette. Her name is Kathy. And she has some of this like warrantless optimism, too. She is pretty comfortable just, you know, going along with the weirdness head sort of in the clouds mm -hmm. but then bella lugosi gets thrown out of the clinic because he's not actually supported on the like sag actors insurance anymore right he can't pay for it and ed's like you're you're all better man you're all better and he, he's like hobbling out like barely alive <laughs> and Edward says, it's okay, you know, we're going to make another film project. And he gets out a tripod and captures, like, a single shot is how it's presented in this movie of just Bella walking around in front of his house. Mm -hmm. And it is poignant. I mean, he says he wants to take a moment to smell the roses and, like, appreciate being alive. It definitely increased my appreciation for that moment and, like, the footage that ends up getting included. In plan nine. Because then the next thing is he's dead. Bella Lugosi is dead, as the song says. It's almost a smash cut when he dies. Because we get like a scene of him talking about how he's still alive and he's ready to go. And then we get Ed Wood picking up a phone call and then it goes right to the funeral where he's dead. It's like almost got comic time into it. <laughs> what it smash cuts from is this big monologue that Martin Landau does where he's walking down the street with Ed Wood and they stop in front of this like doorway of a store or apartment building or something, but it's like a big proscenium arch of a stage. And he launches into the monologue that he had in Bride of the Monster. And there's this crowd of tourists passing by and they like get caught up in the moment and they clap for him. And then, yeah, smash cut to he's dead. 
but Edward has this like single reel, if that. I mean, it's you know, it's the five or six shots of Bella Lugosi walking around a graveyard, and so now he's going around trying to shop Bella Lugosi's final film, and pulls the strings that he's been learning to pull, and recruits money from these church backers because I guess they're interested in making a series of films about the apostles. And he says, well, if you put your money behind a tested genre like horror, you'll make a profit that you'll be able to put into your religious films. Hmm. Little dodgy. Yeah, we'll see about that. And so he gets them to bankroll what he's calling grave robbers from outer space. And they say, okay, we'll do it if you come and all get baptized. So then the next scene is Edward and Criswell and Tor Johnson and Bunny Brickenridge and Vampira, who her job prospects have dried up because her show got canceled, are all in a baptismal swimming pool getting dunked in the water. And Bill Murray says... How do you get all your friends to get baptized just so you can make a monster movie? And that's kind of the soul of this film. That's a good summary. Yeah. It's like he convinced enough people to believe in his spark for whatever reason. And maybe it wasn't even justified, but it happened. And for that alone, it's remarkable. And this is right in any other movie where the masterpiece would emerge. And I will say it's like it is a it's a masterpiece of sorts It's an anti masterpiece that emerges, which is what makes it funny, because, yeah, he's firing on all his cylinders and we see him making Plan 9 from Outer Space. And the church investors are there for a lot of the shoot and something that's gone on the whole movie is that whenever Edward is shown capturing a take on camera, he'll say, action, the take happens, people bumble through, cut, print it. That was perfect. <laughs> and 20 times in the movie, he must say, well, that was perfect. And this time, somebody finally calls him out on it. They're like, Mr. Wood, that gravestone fell over. Do you know anything about the craft of filmmaking? And so now Ed Wood is, for the first time, starting to get fed up. He's getting frustrated and put upon. And it it builds to a head when he comes out amidst these Baptist investors in his Angora sweater and like a blonde wig. And they're at an impasse. So Ed Wood storms off the set and he goes to a bar some of my favorite movies is when the weird creative is despondent and goes to a bar. Mm -hmm. What are some other examples of that? Well, UHF is the big one. And we'll, we'll dig into that perhaps since you did for your birthday, that thing you do maybe in January, we'll, we'll get a UHF episode and I'll get to talk about the UHF bar scene. Okay. But in this bar scene, Johnny Depp walks in <laughs> And he sees at the other end of the bar, his hero, Orson Welles. So we have this probably, almost certainly never happened, 
but is perfect for the purposes of the movie. Meeting between the alleged greatest director of all time and the alleged worst director of all time when Wells and Wood sit down in a booth at a bar. I didn't even think about it from that context, but you're right. That's pretty funny. And they're both writer, director, actors, people who, if they don't get Final Cut necessarily, they they want it. They're (laughs) would-be auteurs. (laughs) And what they sit down and talk about is that they're both dealing with interminable film projects. People are trying to manhandle their creative vision, trying to shackle them to something they don't believe in. And actually, the movie that Orson Welles is talking about is a Don Quixote adaptation, which he was never able to finish. Like, I think maybe in the last couple of years, Netflix or something bought it and put out some version of it or something. That may have been another movie. What was that one? Name? Not Name of the Wind. That's something with wind. Yeah. the I think that's a Miyazaki. But anyways, go on. Okay. Not the same project then, but similar. Something that he was working on for years that never came together. But Wells tells Wood that visions are worth fighting for. And the the Wells actor, it's like dubbed. So they got this big actor and most of the scene is from behind his shoulders. And you're just hearing an Orson Welles impression from noted... Orson Welles impressionist Maurice LaMarche who played Brain on Pinky and the Brain and basically the whole Brain performance is just him doing his Orson Welles impression. There's a lot of Orson Welles in this. It's not just the scene. He's got like posters of it and of Citizen Kane and he talks about Orson Welles every now and then. But with his fire lit anew, Ed Wood goes back to his set. (laughs) He tells the backers, we're gonna make this movie my way. Which... I don't know if that's something that a director can just tell the producers. (laughs) I don't think you can get away with that. Certainly not with Ed Wood's level of clout, but I guess they are all green alike. They're all new to this, so he's ultimately able to get away with making Plan 9 from Outer Space. And we see everybody goes to the premiere of Plan 9 from Outer Space, and they sit down to watch it, and it starts up on the movie screen. And we see the pie pan flying saucers zip across the screen on fishing line and once again ed wood has that light in his eyes and he turns to his girlfriend and says this is it this is the one i'll be remembered for (laughs) obviously tinged with irony i I love how this final scene is shot it's so good in in a whole bunch of ways first of all like you really feel like the hugeness of it like it's probably just a normal theater but the way it's shot like something about the wide angle or something it just feels like this infinitely vast theater and then you can almost sense the it reminds me of the in the simpsons i forget exactly what the context is but it's like a long shot on their face and the smile gradually turns to a frown and i just I don't know if we actually see the what the faces of the producers are at all at this, but I can just imagine them like being like, oh, my God, what is this? What have we done? <laughs> and the final, final beat is then Ed leaves the theater with Kathy and he proposes to her. Note also that they drove up to the theater in a convertible with the top down. Then it starts pouring rain (laughs) and they've got to go in for the movie premiere. 
And so they say, ah, oh, don't worry about the top. So they just leave the convertible sitting out there in the pouring rain. They they come back out and it's like full. The car is just full of water. They open the doors and it cartoonishly floods out. It's like a Looney Tunes gag. And then Ed Wood proposes and Kathy says, yes, I'll marry you. And they drive off to Vegas. Edward says, let's go to Vegas. It's only a five hour drive. And they jump in and, and putter off. And I just love that. That is that's probably one of my top five favorite movie endings with that delivery of it's only a five hour drive <laughs> and that she's on board with that. Right. As if it's nothing. Yeah. As if it's nothing. Yeah. So that is Tim Burton's Edward biopic from 1994. So what are your thoughts, Dan? Well, one, my, my main thought is, I was like, oh, okay. I get Brian a little bit more after seeing this movie. Not that the things that you make are, are Edward level bad or anything like that, but just I can see why you kind of almost perversely aspire to this guy. Like I, I just the enthusiasm he has, the, the relentlessness and the way that he's able to pull people together into an inspiring vision, even if it's an idiosyncratic one. Do I have that right? Absolutely. That's 100% correct. Just any time that he's sitting down with this circle of friends around him and how the circle gets bigger, like people join in and they almost don't even know why they're there, but they feel motivated to stick with this thing. Like the two cops are there the whole time from the play at the beginning. They're part of the circle from the very beginning. And yeah, it's it's funny. It's inspiring. And <laughs> at the same time, then, yeah, we get that text at the end. that's like he never actually really amounted to anything. He made a few porno movies and and that was that. I pulled it up. This is like exactly in the normal biopic where you get like the happily ever after. Edward D. Wood Jr. kept struggling in Hollywood, but mainstream success eluded him. After a slow descent into alcoholism and monster nudie films, he died in 1978 at the age of 54. Two years later, Ed was voted worst director of all time, bringing him worldwide acclaim and a new generation of fans. That's almost like American graffiti when they talk about how like one of the characters died in Vietnam and one of them died in a car crash a year later. <laughs> yep. So a, a few years post plan nine from outer space edward made a movie called orgy of the dead <laughs> but criswell was still sticking around so he's he's in there somewhere i haven't actually watched that one but yeah criswell is on the poster so i don't know if i want to see criswell in the orgy of the dead i don't know if i want to see the orgy of the dead at all honestly i, I might be with you on that <laughs> But yeah, that's that's what lay in the future for Ed Wood. Well, I appreciate you finally taking a look at these movies, Dan. So are you ready to say, is it good? Yeah, let's do it. So let's start with Plan 9 from Outer Space. Sure. So I'll talk us in here. Is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So shall we we'll start with plan nine is plan nine from outer space from 1959 good. And you can go ahead. I mean, it's kind of a dumb question, right? Is plan nine from outer space a good movie? 
I mean, it's famously bad, you know, but like I've kind of talked about how for me, it's like a sliding scale between so bad it's good to good. And like, if you're going to say it's so bad, it's good. You're saying it's good. That's I mean, it's right there, you know, but it also feels like you can't quite say it's good. It's like you got to honor its badness by not saying that it's good. I will say this is it's like 75 or 80 minutes long. It's short. It's always surprising. There's always something that just makes you say, what the hell is going on right now? Each scene is a new delight, a new wonder of like of of idiocy, of incompetence, of just inspired shittiness. And I, I appreciate it. I was smiled and laughed a whole bunch of times. So like for me, it's good as an unintentional comedy maybe not good as a movie overall. And it just, it's got so much strangeness in it. Um, Anti-masterpiece. But again, I, I wouldn't feel appropriate saying it's good. So I'm going to give it a four. I'm going to give it a good-ish because it has the air of goodness on one axis to it, but I can't in good conscience call it good, Brian. So I'm giving this a four. My true admiration for Plan 9 from Outer Space and all of its homespun, loopy, bad but also brilliant because of how just deranged weird bad it is glory the the prototypical so bad it's good movie at least as far as i'm concerned right up there with troll 2 which has a similar amount of every scene is a surprise and a delight <laughs> what about you brian i agree with everything you're saying i'm on a very similar plane i'm gonna edge just into five out of eight this is truly a so bad that it for me is good part of that is maybe that it got into me so early like there was a time when i just accepted okay well this is a movie this is <laughs> this is what a movie is uh and now i i look at it from both sides now in the words of judy collins but i i i do appreciate it was that her name or is it jody collins no it's it's joni mitchell is that what you're thinking of I think the version in the the movie that we watched, I think Joni Mitchell sang it originally. I think the version in As I Was Moving Ahead was Judy Collins. Okay, gotcha. Which it was my favorite version. That was the part of that movie that I liked. But then I realized he didn't even write it. The minute and a half out of five hours. <laughs> yes. But what are your feelings then about the 1994 film, Ed Wood? So... Ed Wood, 1994, directed by Tim Burton. So I really like this. As I was watching this movie, like the first 10 minutes, I got the the tickle of watching something special. I was like, uh-oh, this is a good one. And it, it kept it up pretty well. Um, I can't I can't go into masterpiece territory. It's a little bit too much of a conventional biopic, although even in those terms, it still kind of upends with like this this sense of irony, but also like, not mean irony, just like kind of a, a zealousness of Ed Wood kind of undercutting all of the biopic beats just because he just keeps doing his thing and keep going. And it's a little silly, but like, honestly, keeps its tone really under control. I was really impressed. But man, I love the way this is this is shot. It's so beautiful, this black and white. And it does evoke the kind of weird way that plan nine is shot but still just is a, like really fun to look at and they some really inventive stuff that he does with the camera and i wasn't quite sold on how the 
quote unquote transvestitism theme played into the the whole movie. It seemed like it kind of got halfway there and really connecting. Maybe not. Maybe I'll watch it again and it'll it'll work a little, little better for me. And and just really inventive too. So I'm right on the edge of a six and a seven, um, a very good and an exceptionally good. I'm just going to go ahead and give it an exceptionally good. I'll give this one a seven because I think it's I think it's something special. And I think I would watch it again and enjoy it probably just as much the second time through. What about you, Brian? Awesome. That's good to hear. For me, I'm at a very high seven with multiple times that it lapses into definite eight territory for me. Like I said, that ending is one of my all-time favorites. Just how happy he is and has stayed throughout the lion's share of the film. He just, he never wavers. And that, yeah, she's she's along for the ride. And they're climbing into this just drenched car to drive five hours. Aquarium, yeah. (laughs) Because it is, it's both of those things. It's like the patheticness of it, but the optimism in spite of that. And I think the cast is really great. Uh, All the people playing these outlandish roles and then to think that actually these were real people is pretty wild. And then to go to the tape and watch Plan 9 from Outer Space, it's like, wow, they really nailed it. Uh, at the same time, it's like more moored to reality than many Tim Burton films because it is that standard biopic. So it's it's interesting territory. But yeah, I think for me, a high seven, exceptionally good. Okay, yeah. It's, it's a special one. Definitely close to my heart. And so, Dan, I don't think our extravagant month of months is over yet. So what lies ahead? I knew from the start I was going to pick a David Lynch movie uh, before this month was done. And so the question was always, what David Lynch movie am I going to pick? And the two options are Mulholland Drive. Have you still never seen Mulholland Drive, Brian? Yeah, this will be new to me. And the other option is Inland Empire. So I've actually never seen Inland Empire. And I considered picking both of them, but I can tell you that there's enough movie in Mulholland Drive to make up a whole episode by itself. And then Inland Empire is like a three and a half hour extravaganza. And like, I was like, that's, I want to give both of these their proper due. So I think at some point in the future, I'll choose Inland Empire. I feel like we got to level up to that because that one's like, I haven't seen it, but by reputation is like the even more, insane version of sort of what Mulholland Drive kind of kicks off. So I'm going to pick Mulholland Drive, the David Lynch 2001 film. And I've seen this one a handful of times. Um, I've written about it on the Goods uh, Film Reviews website. And we're going to have a lot to talk about with this one, Brian. There's a lot going on in this one. That is Mulholland Drive from, from 2001. All right. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, I think there will be more picks in the not too distant future where it's just just one movie. <laughs> yeah, this is my first pick this month that is or this quote unquote month that is. This is my first pick in this quote unquote month that is just one film. Uh, I did two in all of the other ones, four in one of them. So, you know. But uh, this is kind of the, my last movies about making movies month pick. And so had to be Mulholland Drive. So that's what we'll do, Brian. I'm looking forward to it. 
Me too. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in here on The Goods. <laughs> <laughs>